is Ann Robertson, the Executive Director of the Massachusetts Bible Society. This is the sermon from May 6th. I'm not sure if those of you who subscribe to the podcast got last week's sermon from April 29th that I preached in Shrewsbury. I tried putting it up, and for some reason, iTunes was not picking it up. Um, I don't know if that was just on my computer, because I did sort of a new sermon with an old title, uh, or what the what the scoop was, but it wasn't working, and my code was validating fine, so I don't know what was the matter with it. So I hope you got that, and I hope you will also get this one. Since the church I was at this week, which was Aldersgate United Methodist Church in Chelmsford, Massachusetts, didn't record the sermon, I'm here at home on Monday and going to record it, so it's not a it is live, sort of, but it's live to my computer screen instead of live to the congregation. Uh, but I did preach this on yesterday at two services that they had. Uh, the text, there are two texts that it's really based on. One is John 13, 31 through 35, uh, and the second is Acts 11, 1 through 18. And you'll hear me describe the context of that during the sermon. Uh, but I invite you to pick up your Bible and read it. I've entitled the sermon, God's Cleansing Love. And even though we're fully into the Easter season, the lectionary this week takes us back to the night of Jesus' betrayal. That's the context for what we heard from the Gospel of John. Chapter 13 begins with Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, including Judas. And comments are there with several layers of meaning about being clean and unclean. Right after washing their feet, Jesus becomes agitated, and he announces that one of the twelve will betray him. And the passage that this is based on, verses 31 through 35, follows immediately after Judas leaves the room. And in John's symbolic play with darkness and light, John declares at the end of verse 30, and it was night. So it's in the context and contrast of clean feet and a heart bent on betrayal, that Jesus announces his imminent departure and decides to give a new commandment to the remaining eleven disciples. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. Now, in case you find yourself thinking, sort of along the lines of a Hallmark card, that love is nice, fluffy, and easy, remember the context here. The disciples are to love others the way Jesus has loved them. And how has Jesus loved them? He just showed them. He took on a servant role and cleansed them. He washed their feet, including the feet of the one who would, within the hour, beat a path to the door of Jesus' enemies to betray him to death. And then the rest of that incredible weekend unfolded, and we zip ahead to our Eastertide place on the church calendar. Judas chose to end his life maybe believing that if he didn't do it, the other disciples would. Peter, however, is still with us post-resurrection, and trying to assimilate all that has happened, and trying to remember all that Jesus said and did in his last hours with them. The foot-washing time was memorable for Peter, if you remember the story. He knew his own flaws, and he knew maybe more than the others who it was that was doing the menial chore of washing his feet. He'd objected very loudly, No, you shall not wash my feet. And when Jesus insists and says, Unless I wash your feet, you have no place with me, then Peter just sort of goes a whole hog and says, Well, give me a whole bath then. 
good old Peter. Jesus calms him down, affirms the cleanness not only of Peter's body, but also of his heart. But Jesus also mentions that not everyone in the room shares that cleanness of heart. And yet Jesus keeps on washing, not making any distinction between clean and unclean. The love of Jesus washed them all, and he instructs them to do the same. Then a few verses later, he names that act as love. Love one another as I have loved you, just now, as I washed your feet, all of you. The categories of clean and unclean were primary in the Jewish psyche of Jesus' day. If you didn't know the distinction, you'd end up being cut off from Jewish life, from the sacrificial system, which was the only means of atonement for sin, and often from being in community with others. You had to pay attention to what you ate and how you ate it, who and what you touched, where you went, who you visited, and the condition of your health. For some infractions, you'd become unclean for a day. But for others, it could be a week or more, or maybe even a lifetime if you contracted a disease such as leprosy. So I don't think it was lost on Peter that night that Jesus says there are unclean people in the room, and he washes their feet anyway. Peter is a proper Jew. And I'm guessing he didn't really get what Jesus was saying or doing. At least not until Acts 10, where Peter has the strange vision and subsequent experience that he's describing to others in our text in Acts 11. The vision, as you hear earlier, revolves around those categories of clean and unclean. Peter sees a sheet coming down from heaven, and the sheet is filled with all kinds of food that a Jew is not supposed to eat, the unclean foods. And God tells Peter to get up and eat it. Well, Peter figures this is some sort of test of his adherence to the law, and so he refuses, as any good Jew would have. But apparently that wasn't the right answer, because the test comes again, and Peter refuses again. It comes a third time. Maybe as a foreshadowing of the three times that Peter denies Jesus, or the three times that Jesus later asks him, Do you love me? But still Peter refuses, sticking with the laws in Leviticus, even though God kept basically saying, Hey, if I say it's clean, then it's clean. Don't go quoting scripture at me. I wrote it. But the vision is then interrupted by a very real vision of the same thing. It isn't food. But some Gentiles are knocking on Peter's door on behalf of a Gentile centurion named Cornelius. Cornelius would like a visit from Peter. Well, that's a no-no. Gentiles were unclean, always, all the time, and to go into the house of a Gentile was strictly forbidden. But the Holy Spirit has begun to work in Peter, and suddenly he gets the vision. Like that day that Peter took the great risk of getting out of the boat in a storm and walking on the water to Jesus. He takes the risk of being unclean. He invites the Gentile messengers in to spend the night. And then he leaves with them the next morning for the home of Cornelius. I think that step out the door as Peter leaves with them to go to Cornelius' house is the birthday of the church as we know it today. I know we talk about Pentecost as the birthday of the church. I think that's the conception of the church. I don't think it's the actual day the church is born until what is gained at Pentecost is acted on. 
when Peter walks out that door, because it begins the seismic shift away from a literal interpretation of scriptural law and into the much more fluid, exciting, and risky world of trying to really listen to the voice of God as it speaks in the moment and watching for what the Spirit is actually doing in the world, not only what the Spirit has done in the past and not only what the voice of God has said in the past. Not that the church has ever blocked the ways that God had spoken or partnered with the faithful of the past millennia, but those who came to believe that Jesus was not dead but alive and still very much at work in the world through the Holy Spirit, they could no longer rule out the possibility that God might do a new thing and even shift the rules to adapt to new circumstances in a new age. Now that sounds like heresy until you see that it happened in Scripture itself. Peter's step out that door led, as you might imagine, to a huge battle in the early church over a literal adherence to the law. Now I know that churches today never have conflicts, but way back then, at the very beginning, there was this huge honking conflict, and that's what it was about. And this passage, starting with the vision in Acts 10, what we read as Peter's describing that vision in Acts 11 is because he's gotten in trouble for it. He came back from the house of a Gentile and people are saying, uh, so Peter, what are you doing? You're going into the house of a Gentile. You're not supposed to do that. And finally, the showdown comes in Acts 15 at the Council of Jerusalem. Some cite the law of Moses as a reason that Gentile believers can't be part of the faith unless they first adhere to Jewish law. But then Paul and finally Peter get up and tell about their experiences with the Gentiles and say that, you know, when we were there with them, God didn't seem to care that they weren't circumcised or that they weren't following the dietary laws. We saw the Holy Spirit poured out on them anyway. And if God doesn't care about it, then why are we being so fussy about it? Those experiences of the living presence of God ruled the day, and the apostles, remember all of them are Jews at this point, the apostles made the astounding heretical decision not to require circumcision and most of the other Levitical laws of the Gentile, of the Gentile believers. Gentiles didn't have to do that anymore. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant. Go back and read Genesis 12 and all kinds of things about how God is not going to let you be part of God's people if you're not circumcised. I don't think we've even begun to understand how radical a decision they made. It would be like the church today saying, you know what, baptism, I don't think we really need to require that anymore. But they did it. And they did it because they believed that Jesus was alive and working among them and not simply entombed in the sacred pages of Scripture. It might have been the case at one point that you had to be circumcised, but God was doing a new thing now and was blessing people that weren't. What do we do with that? It began with Peter stepping out the door to visit Cornelius. And I think the seeds of his ability to interpret the vision and take that step were sown back in his somewhat bumbling and confused days with Jesus. Like back on the day when Jesus said, 
It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles. Or the fateful night that Jesus washed the feet of the one who would betray him to death before the night was out, and who had commanded them all to do likewise. That was the way that Jesus had loved his disciples, and that was the way Jesus commanded his disciples to love others, even to love enemies, to wash them clean with love, even when they're about to betray you, to step over the threshold of those that a literal interpretation of Scripture would say are unclean, and to bring God's welcoming love. Do you remember that story in the Gospels of the woman who was hemorrhaging and trying to secretly touch the hem of Jesus' robe in the hope of being healed? Of course, she does. She manages to succeed, and Jesus stops, because even though everybody else is pressing against him, he recognizes that power has been drawn out of him, and the woman is healed. But I think in the context of clean and unclean, there's something else to pay attention there. A woman was considered unclean during a time of bleeding, and for this woman it had been going on for twelve years, a condition that was not only horrible physically, but because of her unclean status, it was horrible emotionally and socially as well. Now, the way clean and unclean worked, the status of unclean trumped clean. In other words, if you're clean and you touch something or someone unclean, a dead body, let's say, the uncleanness rubbed off on you as well. But in the story of the hemorrhaging woman, Jesus shows that he's come to reverse that, there's contact between an unclean woman and Jesus. But this time, clean trumps unclean. Jesus doesn't become defiled by the touch. The woman is healed, and the woman becomes clean. We see in the life and the stories of Jesus that the love of God seeks out those considered unclean. And instead of defiling the clean one, such unconditional love heals the defiled one. It happens everywhere you look in the Gospels. And the church is born the day that Peter gets it and brings the love of God to wash the home of Cornelius. I think the church is often languishing today because we're again caught up in trying to separate the clean from the unclean. We're often stuck in what the Bible said millennia ago to a people whose language and culture we don't understand. We don't understand the Middle East today in the West, let alone 2,000 years ago. And we've closed our eyes to how the Holy Spirit is actually at work in the world right now, under our noses. If you ask me, I think it's time that the church opened its doors wide, not just to let the supposedly unclean messengers in, but more importantly, to get up the next morning and to follow them out, out to their homes, out to the world, out to the dusty places where the poor gather, where refugees are starving where people are brutalized because somebody else thinks they're unclean, and to put a towel around our waists and wash their feet before sitting down to a meal, even if they're about to betray us, even if the Bible says they're unclean. Because the Bible also tells us that Jesus can cast out that unclean spirit, can heal the unclean condition, or, as was the case with the Gentiles, that God cares more about the devotion and faith in a person's heart than about any group to which a person may outwardly belong. Sometimes we just get clean and unclean wrong. Only you know who the unclean people are in your life and in the life of your congregation. 
I don't know who they are, and it might take some soul-searching even for you to know it yourself. Sometimes we think we welcome everyone, when what we really mean is we welcome everyone who's willing to do things the way we do it, to like the things we like, to behave in the ways that we think are proper, and basically to become like us. Who are the unclean for you? Only you can say that. But I can tell you that God has gathered them all in a sheet, and every day lowers them before our eyes. They're in that sheet along with Jesus, who's eating with them, touching them, and washing their feet, saying to us, Don't call unclean those that I have washed. Love them as I have loved you. Unconditionally, with all your sins and failings and flaws, I have washed you all with my love and invite you to share a meal with me, even if betrayal is in your heart. Go and do likewise. Amen. Thanks for subscribing to the Sermon Podcast, and I hope you'll stop by and visit my website at www.annrobertson.com. I also do a weekly devotion called Spirit Walkers that's available either by email or also as a podcast. Got a couple of books, Blowing the Lid Off the God Box and God's Top Ten, Blowing the Lid Off the Commandments. So I invite you to check those out as well and to drop me an email and let me know that you're out there. I'd love to hear from you. The email is Anne, A-N-N-E, at annrobertson.com. I'd love to hear from you. Have a blessed day.